Father, thanks for the opportunity to gather this morning. Would you meet us in your word, by your spirit, with your people, God? Would you show us that you are always actively working? Would you help us see it in the everyday and the ordinary as we look at the book of Esther together? God, change us, mold us, shape us, make us into your son. We ask that you would do it, and we pray it in your son's name. Amen. I was having a conversation with my daughter last week, and she asked me the question. She goes, Dad, what is your favorite book of the Bible? I'm like, well, uh, right now it's Esther. It's Esther, because we're starting Esther today. And if you would have asked me that, if she would have asked me that three months ago, it would have been Revelation, because we were studying Revelation. And it feels like um, every book that I get to sit down and open up and slow down enough to really get into the text, to prepare to teach it, I just feel like God meets me in so many ways over so many times. And the book of Esther, as I'm kind of beginning to allow it to unfold as God is showing me what's in here and, and what commentators have written, uh, it is an unbelievable book. So I don't know if you've read it. I know some of the women studied it uh, like a semester ago. I, I just hope that God meets us in it for the next eight weeks, which is what we're going to be spending. And that'll lead us right into Easter, celebrating the resurrection. So Esther is 10 chapters in the Old Testament, this narrative. We're going to be spending eight weeks in it collectively. And anytime we jump into a new book of the Bible, it's always important for us to get the context. Like, what is the text trying to do? What is the story of Esther? What, what, what is the push that the author, inspired by the Spirit, is trying to say to the original audience? And then what is it trying to say to us. And what we see in Esther, which we see in lots of the Bible, is that there's these constant reversals in the narrative. I don't know if you guys got that push notification to, to watch the Bible Project video on Esther. Super helpful as it looks thematically on these 10 chapters. What's the author trying to do just from a literary structure? But there's lots of reversals where you think it's going this way. It's headed this way. This is the direction. You go, oh, this isn't looking good. And then something changes and it pivots and it moves to the other direction. That happens multiple times in the book of Esther, which is really um, what, what the story of the Bible really all, is all about. It's, it's one direction after you read the first two chapters of Genesis and things are beautiful and made right and God's in connection with people. And then Genesis 3 happens, there's a reversal that all things that are alive now die. That we that once looked to God, now we look at ourselves. And again, we see that great reversal found in the climax of the story of the Bible in Jesus. That as we give our life to him, the things that were once dead now become alive. And so we see multiple reversals. You'll see that theme in the book of Esther as kind of we walk through it. And the reason I love Esther so much as I'm continuing to get into it is um, those reversals come in kind of everyday, constant interactions over time. Redemption Church, uh, we, we're a family, a network of seven churches, and, and we have these six cultural statements that we would go, man, we want our culture to be like this. This is important to us. So all of life is all for Jesus is one of our cultural statements. Um, the last one that we have, if you walk out of here, they're all hung up on, on, over the connect desk on the wall. I was talking to somebody that works the connect desk. She was like, I've never even seen these before. I'm like, well, they've been up there for like two years, right? So if you want to look like, what are we about? And if you've been in the rhythms class, you've heard those cultural statements, what we're trying to be about. But the last one hung up there is that life is naturally supernatural, that God works in the ordinary, everyday things of life. I was having a conversation with a seminary professor a couple of weeks ago that got brought in to kind of train us in some of the ins and outs of the book of Esther. It was super valuable, super helpful for us as pastors. 
And in the midst of our conversation, he, he said he had an interaction with a student a couple weeks back. And the student came up to him and he just said, I just want to live an Elijah life with God. If you're not familiar with a prophet, Elijah in the Old Testament, God just does these big, loud things. He calls out these prophets and God brings down kind of thunder on the altar and, and he does these unbelievable things. And this student was saying like, I just want this experience with God all the time. The professor looked at him and said, I mean, I can appreciate wanting to connect with God in that way, but you're probably going to have more of an Esther life than you will an Elijah life. And what he meant by that is, as we study the book of Esther, if you're familiar, the name of God is nowhere to be found in the 10 chapters of Esther, which some scholars have a problem with. Martin Luther is like, I don't think James should be in the Bible. I don't think the book of Esther should be in the Bible. And the characters are pretty morally compromised throughout the Bible, uh, and, and, and specifically in the book of Esther. And so for us to, to begin to understand where do we see God show up even when he appears silent? And for many of us, man, um, God can work in these miraculous ways. He can part the Red Sea. He can do those unbelievable things, and he still does those things. But it seems like he works in our life in the mundane, the everyday the ordinary? How do we pay attention to those things and not get caught into this trap of needing this big experience from God and seeing that he's with us in our everyday interactions? So as we look at the book of Esther for our time together, we're going to use this language uh, and the idea of when do you see God when he appears silent? Because some of us, you've been praying about certain things, you've been asking God, and it just sounds like he's not showing up. He's not answering that prayer. He's not communicating, you just go like, has he left? Like, what do we do? This is what the book of Esther does. It, it shows God's providence on display in everyday, ordinary interactions with everyday, ordinary people. God's providence on display, his sovereignty, his plan, his promise that he'll never leave our side like we just sang about, that he is with us and that his plan will prevail not in these big, huge, miraculous ways, not because he's not even mentioned in the book, but that he will still do what he does. And the idea of everyday and ordinary interactions with everyday, ordinary people, you might be familiar with the book and go, well, the king, we're gonna, he, he's not ordinary. He's super rich. He has power. Esther is described as very beautiful. That doesn't seem normal. That doesn't seem ordinary. What I mean by ordinary is every single character in the book of Esther has moral flaws, they're all kind of jacked up. We can kind of hold them up in kind of this position, but when you really read the text, you go, oh, they fail, they fail. And what I believe the author is trying to do in the structure of the book, in the first two chapters, they're setting up the character development, and you go, who am I supposed to root for in a narrative? Right? Every story does that. Every movie does that. Every book does that. They're dropping in little hints so that you root for this character at the end. And in Esther, you go, I really... I don't know if I feel good about rooting for anybody. Because as we'll see, there's just compromise after compromise. Even with Esther, you go, I don't really like that she made that decision. That, that, that doesn't feel like it's honoring God in the moment. And so you go, well, am I, am I supposed to like, root for the king? Am I supposed to root for Mordecai? Am I supposed and, and, and God's not mentioned. I think that's a beautiful play with the author to go, that's actually who you root for. That's actually the true king of the entire story. And it should give us, us some comfort in the midst of God still holds his promise true with jacked up people, which is you and me. 
He's still, his grace just gets shown. His providence just gets shown. He uses people that make mistakes morally, but he still uses them for his good and his glory. That ought to be refreshing and hopeful for us. So as we talk through um, this book for the next eight weeks, let's, let's just get some structure around it to help us understand where we're landing in different parts. Because again, it's a narrative. It's going to unfold for us. I know this is hard for us in our current culture of how we um, uh, obtain and absorb media. Like when I was a kid, you, you had to wait for the show a whole week before it came out again. Like an episode would hit and then you, you just have to wait for a week. And then, well, now we just binge, right? We just binge nine episodes in a row. You binge the whole season. You feel like you, you know, you finish and you're just like, I'm less of a human, but I got it done, right? Like, because it's enticing. Well, we're, we're not going to binge Esther. I mean, you can read it on your own. Go ahead. But it's going to unfold kind of chapter by chapter. So think of it in that context. It's, it's, it's because it's narrative, it's going to read different in like a Pauline letter that we could go, oh, that's what it is. And that's what I take away from it. We will pull things from the text, but this is an unfolding story. So because of that, to be reminded and understand that over these 10 chapters, this is a 10-year span of a single story. That's important for us to recognize because some of us, we read it and we go, oh, this just happened in a long week, all this stuff. And he goes, no, there's actually in between one chapter, there's four years. And so we need to recognize and realize that this is kind of a slow pace. Over 10 years, this is happening. God still allows his promise to happen. He still shows up. Here's the breakdown just for us to, to recognize is the way the author puts the chapters together inspired by the Spirit. Chapter 1 and 2 sets the characters. So we'll see. We're going to look at chapter 1 this morning. We'll look at chapter 2 next week. But it's setting up the characters like we said. Like, who am I supposed to root for here? And we'll even see that a little bit in the text today. Chapters 3 through 7 unfolds the dramatic conflict that happened in the book. And then chapters 8 through 10 resolves that conflict. That gives us some idea of how it's going to be unfolded over the eight weeks for us. So we're going to look at chapter one today. If you have a Bible, you can open it up if it's not already there to Esther chapter one. And here's the big idea we're going to take from chapter one as we look at this first character, this king. And it's this, that God is always at work in spite of appearances while the world obsesses over appearances. That God is always at work in spite of the appearances, in spite that his name is not in here, he's always at work, even in spite of that, while the world, we obsess over our appearances. So let's jump in. This is Esther chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And just before I start reading, just so you know, I'm reading from the NIV, which I like the way it translates a little bit easier in paragraph form uh, for a narrative. Some of you have the ESV, which is a good translation as well, but the king's name is different. That's the Hebrew name in the ESV. It's the Greek name in the NIV. So it's the same character, but just so you know, if you look and you go, well, that's not what my Bible says, that's why, because of the difference in translation. Um, and Xerxes is more popular even with the historical translation of it. So let's look at what this says. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll stop and we'll kind of unpack it together. This is Esther chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes, the nobles, and the provinces were present. We'll note that. That's important to know who's in the room at this time. Verse 4. 
For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords, white linen, linen, and purple material of silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver, mosaic pavement of prophyi, marble, mother of pearl, and costly stones. Wine was served in gold, uh, goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's libertary. Verse 8, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Let's stop there and unpack what the author is trying to do with this character narration, setting up the characters for us to pay attention to in the context of the whole book. If we're talking out of this first chapter, if God's always at work in spite of appearances, while we obsess over them, while the world obsesses over them, like why do we get so caught up in appearances? Because we all do for some reason. We get caught up with how we project our image, what people think of us. Why are we so caught up with our appearances? The way somebody looks on the outside, whether they wear a certain brand of clothing or they drive this certain car or they have this certain house, we go, man, they must have it together. They must have it all figured out. So if I do what they do, man, I'll have kind of that, that, that illusion of kind of power and control. And what appearance starts to do, it starts to become this currency of the world that if you look the right way, you sound the right way, then man, you've got it figured out. You must have some type of control and security over your life. Appearance, again, becomes the currency of our world of power and control. And this is the false dichotomy that the author of Esther is trying to put on display for the reader, specifically about King Xerxes. And we're going to see here and why in just a minute. Again, looking back at the text, he has this banquet. It's six months long. Now, it's not a party for all six months, but for the full six months, what he's doing is he's putting all his best stuff on display. Look at how much money I have. It's just stacks on stacks, right? Like He's just like, I've got all this stuff. I've got all this wealth. I've got all this money, even down to the display of what's going on in his uh, physical place. The Bible doesn't devote any type of physical description to a place except for this and the temple. And what I think it's doing is going like, look how glorious Xerxes is. I mean, the dude has couches of gold, which sounds super uncomfortable. I hope there's pillows. Like, why would you, a gold couch? I don't know, silver couch. It's, it's basically flaunting. You know, you remember those cartoons when you were a kid where the person just has a stack of money and they're just burning them to kind of light a cigar or something like that. Like, it's just like wealth upon wealth upon wealth. It's this appearance that he is in control. Look how amazing I am. And those six months culminate with this seven-day party. Where it's like, okay, you've, you've all seen how amazing I am as a leader, as Persia, as a nation. Man, we're going to do things together. And then it culminates with the seven-day party. He's showing off his greatness, and there's a reason he's showing off of it. Remember who's in the room. Not only are all the people from the capital there, they're all there, but it's specifically, you look in the text, it's the military people that are there. Why? Because if you know anything about history, Xerxes is about to go try and conquer the Greeks. 
He wants to extend Persia's empire. He wants to say, man, Greeks are pretty good, but man, Persia's way better, and we're going to be way better. We're going to go, and we're going to conquer the Greeks. So he's making this kind of recruiting pitch to them to, 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 to join them. There's a well-known story about Pat Riley, who was an NBA player and a coach. He coached the Lakers, Magic Johnson, that whole team. That Pat Riley's was the head coach during that time in the 80s. And then he went on to be a, a member of the Miami Heat and coached them to championships. And years ago, when LeBron James was just coming out of his first contract, when he was still a young player, and now he was a free agent, everybody wanted LeBron on their team. And the story goes, when Pat Riley finally got face-to-face with LeBron James, he goes in and they have this conversation, and Riley has this bag with him. And he sits down with LeBron, he doesn't say anything, and he just takes the bag and he dumps it out on this table. And it's his nine championship rings as a player, as a coach, as a GM. And he just basically tells LeBron, he's like, listen, this is what you're after. I can get you what you're after. And LeBron takes his talents to South Beach. (laughs) And he he wins a ring. He doesn't stay in Cleveland initially. He wins his first ring with Miami. And this is exactly what King Xerxes is doing with the military power. He's saying, look at all this stuff that I have. Do you want power? Do you want wealth? Do you want the uh, appearance of all this stuff? Like, man, come with me, and we're going to go, and we're going to defeat the Greeks. Well, if you know history, they go to that battle, and they lose out of 300 Spartan Greek soldiers. That's just the, this is the story, right? Before it happens. But this is Xerxes' best play. He's using, again, um, the appearance of wealth to say, hey, this is, I'm going to give you whatever you want. Not only is he using the appearance of wealth, what else is he using? He's using control and power. Look at verse 8. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. The king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. He's going, listen, not only will you have all this wealth, golden couches, man, you could do it, but you can have whatever kind of drink you want. You can be your own king. Just come with me. This, this is the allurance and, and, of appearance to say this is the currency. Here's what happens. As he has kind of all the appearance of wealth and power and control at his fingertips in these first eight verses, and you go, oh, my goodness. Man, this guy's powerful. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So King Xerxes over here with his dudes, they're partying. And Queen Vashti's over here with the ladies, and they're hanging out too, and they're partying, right? Everybody's partying. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. There's no way I'm reading those names, okay? All those guys in verse 10, seven eunuchs, to do what? Verse 11, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown to, in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles. She, she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And the king became furious and burned with anger. So again, let's follow the storyline. The king's like, man, look at all this stuff I have. It's unbelievable, man. You can have all the wine you want, man. To to your heart's content. Oh, yeah, this is going to be the crown jewel. This is going to be the thing that really locks them in. I'm going to bring my queen because she's unbelievable to look at. They're probably hammered drunk right at this point. It says in the text, man, they've got this wine. So he said, go get get the queen. I'm really going to show you what you're really after. And she says, no. Now, we don't know from the text why she says no. We don't know how she says no. But we know she says no. And what I think the text is really trying to do here, it's foreshadowing and it's setting up the tension that we're going to find in chapter 4. 
when Esther has to make a decision. And what it's showing us is even if you're the queen and you say no to the king, it's not going to go well for you. Right? There's a power dynamic that gets um, uh, pregnant in the text here that is going to be uh, taken care of in chapter 4. Because most scholars think, um, as we're going to continue to read here in a second, that because she says no, um, she probably gets executed. So that's in the back of Esther's mind as we continue to read the text. I think that's what primarily the text is doing. Because again, sometimes we want to hold up Vashti as kind of this um, like feminist. And, and obviously it seems like there's some abuse of power here, but we, we don't know why she says no. The text doesn't tell us. And I think, again, more of the important reason in the text is it's setting up this tension that Esther is going to have to deal with in chapter 4. Okay? So what happens in this text? He's going, man, I've got all this stuff, man. Come meet my queen. And she says, no. The text says in verse 12, he's angry. He's furious. He's probably a little embarrassed. He probably has shame. He probably has pride, like we've talked about the last several weeks. Because why? He's trying to recruit these soldiers to fight for him, to follow his commands, and your wife won't even follow your command? Am I really going to follow you? He feels embarrassed. He feels angry. What does he do when his power and control are kind of taken out of his hands? Let's see what he does. He begins to consult with his seven nobles, the names I can't read, and he asks them, man, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? I'm angry. What should we do? Verse 16, then Mimucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples and all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all women. And so they uh, will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's noble in the same way. There will be no end to the disrespect and discord. Verse 19, therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is to never again enter the presence of King Xerxes. And let the king give her royal position to someone who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout his vast realm, and all the women will respect their husbands for the greatest to the least, for the least to the greatest. Excuse me. Verse 21. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in his own script, to each in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler of his own household using his native tongue. What happens when Xerxes doesn't get what he wants? When his power and control is taken away, he uses power and control to try and get it back. He doubles down. He goes, okay, uh, 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 we're going to just go harder. And do you notice, like, this isn't even, the text implicates it. It's, it's not from his own. He gets with his dudes and he goes, hey, man, like, we can't let the women just be crazy like this. This is going to happen for everybody. He kind of, he kind of blows it out of proportion, and, and the king's just like, well, okay. Yeah, 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 let's do that. Let's do that. And you'll see in, in his character, this is a running theme for King Xerxes. He's a puppet throughout the whole text, right? First, it's, it's, it's uh, Memucan, this guy, and then it's Haman in chapter 3, and then it's actually Mordecai in 4, and then in 5, it's Esther. He's just a puppet. 
So what is this, what is all, what's the author trying to help us see about King Xerxes? That man, he's got all this stuff on the outside. He looks powerful. He looks like he's in control. He's got it together, but he's really insecure. He can't make decisions for himself. He gets embarrassed and angry at this one thing. That's what the text is trying to show us in the midst of this, that this currency of appearances, man, it, it doesn't quite equal this power and control that you think it has. It's actually a counterfeit. actually doesn't get you what you really want. How do you allow the appearances, your appearances or the appearances of others to control you? I mean, think about how, again, we all kind of fall into this category at some level. Some of us are better than others, and we don't care what you think about us, but we really do. But some of us don't, but like, but some of us, man, we really care about what other people think about us, how um, they view us, and we play this kind of comparison game all of a sudden, and we just go, well, they've, they've got that, and I want to get that, and so I'm going to do what they are doing. I mean, this is the whole advertising scope of celebrity endorsement. Why do I want to buy that face cream from that actress? Like, because she looks amazing, and she's got it all together, and she's on TV going, this, this, you don't use that face cream, Jennifer Anderson, you just don't, okay? So, but we, we, we want to look at these things, and we go, oh, okay, they got it all together, and so we're going to do that as well. How much is, do appearances matter to you? What's more important to you, if you're just really honest, inward character or outward importance? If somebody comes to you and says, man, you just, your character is just so soft. They're like, but you're kind of ugly, and I don't really like you, and kind of sloppy, and you know, you know? And you're like, oh, well, I don't, I don't know if I want that. Can we flip that? Could, like, could my character just be kind of okay, but you really like me from the outside? That's kind of how we operate in our world. How much do appearances matter to you? Are you more concerned with the way you look and, and how you look on the outside or what's going on on the inside? I mean, this is just junior high all day long. I told this story before. One of my buddies that is parenting his junior high. This was a year ago. So he's parenting his son who's in junior high, and his, and his son is um, saving up his money. And this was right when AirPods came out, right? And, and he's going, wow, he just, I mean, he's, he, he spent all his money on AirPods. And we're going like, is that because he blew all his money? Like, what, what are you most concerned about? You don't like AirPods? You don't like technology? Like what? And he goes, no, 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 no. He gets his AirPod, and he puts them in after class. He's in junior high, and he walks to the bus. And we're like, okay. He goes, no, he doesn't have a phone yet. He doesn't have a tablet. He doesn't have, an, he doesn't have anything. He's not playing anything. He just wants them because he knows it's cool. And everybody goes, oh, you got the AirPods, man. Like, oh, JJ, like, that's good, you know? Like, th- this is us all the time. In the church world, it looks like this. I come into conversations with other pastors from other churches, uh, whether it's across the country or it's here locally. And what's one of the first conversations? Questions they ask me to assess, like, what kind of church I have. How many people are in your church? Well, if I say this number, like, oh, oh, right? Or if, oh, I've got a church of 10,000. Like, who wants a church of 10,000? That's terrible. But, like, like the, the bigger number, you kind of pad the stats to make yourself feel better. Like, like, what is that inside of us that wants to make us look better than we actually are? Right? I was having a conversation even this, um, b- before this service, and, and, and one of you guys was saying how uh, one of your kids said, they, they, I reminded them of Steve Carell, the actor, 
which I've heard before, um, not mostly in this context, but when my wife, and I mean, you're nodding, I appreciate that, that's great. This is, uh, I do appreciate the office. Uh, but I'm going like, um, when my wife and I travel and we speak for marriages conferences, uh, I, there's always somebody that comes up and says, oh, your husband, he reminds me of, what's that a guy from the office, Steve Carell? And I'm like, nobody's saying Ryan Gosling? Like, <laughs> Nobody but me, right? Because I want to look better than, oh, Steve Carell's kind of funny, but I don't, do I look like that dude? I don't know. Maybe, maybe. We care so much about our appearances and what we look like and what we project to people. Why do we care that much about that? Because clearly this is, this is the way of the world. This is what Xerxes is after, what, what, everybody look, what everybody says about him. And then what happens when your power and control get taken away from you? like Xerxes. What do you do then? Do you, do you kind of double down like he does and you get real harsh and you get real controlling and you just go, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this, which is what he does in the moment. Why do we care so much about our appearance and what do we do when power and control get ripped away from us? I think those are good indicators for us as we look at this text and what the author is trying to do with this king. How do we respond? How do we react do we trust God in his province over time through faith to go, like, okay, God, uh, I, I don't like this, but I'm going to trust you with it? Or do we try and grab and try and control so that we look a certain way to certain people? If appearances are the currency of the power and control of our world, which they are, what's the currency of the kingdom and the true king? found in Jesus. Three things for us to take away from this character study of King Xerxes that we see in chapter one. Instead of being obsessed with appearances, invest in the hidden things on the inside. How, how do you know if you're investing in appearances or investing on things on the inside? When I say the things on the inside, I'm talking about your character, your love for God, your love for people. Um, the best way to, to give uh, an understanding or a mirror to like where you're investing in is your time and your money. Right? If we sat down and we had a conversation about this and you go, man, I, I don't really know how much I'm investing in my appearances or you know, how much I care about control. And I said, well, let me see your calendar and let me see your online um, bank statement. It just shows us. It's just a mirror for us to go like, how, do we care more about our character or do we care what it looks like on the outside? How do we stop being obsessed with appearances and start investing on what really matters on the inside? That's number one. Number two, instead of grabbing for control, you release it. Instead of grabbing for control, doubling down, trying to be hard, you release control. And man, this is not an easy thing to do. It's messy. You do it by faith. You do it with prayer. You go, God, I don't understand this situation. I don't understand the work situation I'm in. I don't understand this conflict I'm having with my friend. I don't get it. But instead of trying to control it, I'm going to pray and go, God, help me. I trust that you're in control. I trust that I can't see it. Man, we get so tunnel vision in our life. We just go like this. And we're just like, okay, this is all I see right here. And what Esther is going to teach us, if this is all I see, God's not in the text. It's so much bigger. Like, what if a situation you're going through right now that you don't like is for your grandchild? Can, can we think on that scope? 
Can we go like, oh, okay, like, but I just don't like this right here. Well, well could, you, could you play the long game over time that God is doing what he's doing and it's slow and it's meticulous and it's over time and this decision that happens to you right now and the way you react to it and what God teaches you from it, as painful as it is, is going to show up in your kid and it's actually gonna show up in your grandkid. Could we have a larger scope over time and start getting so tunnel vision in and going like, well, God, I don't see you, so I'm just gonna stop following you. It's bigger than that. How do we, instead of grabbing for control, how do we release it to go, God, I need your help. I need your help. I need your help. I don't understand it. I don't like it. That's fair. You should be honest with God in those things. But at the end, you trust him. And you go, okay, God, I don't know. But I trust your province. I trust that you're good. I trust that you're in control. Help me take a step just today. When you get the diagnosis, somebody in our church found out they have cancer this week. We're in there praying during first service. It's like, what do you say to that? I don't have answers for that. Just go, but, but, but we're praying. We're just going, God, we trust you. Just give us what we need today. Just the manna for today, just to do today. Give us strength. Give us power for how we're going to walk through this as a family. That's all you can do. Instead of grabbing for control, release it. Put it back in the control of your Savior. And then third, Instead of looking for God to meet you in only grand, big, life-changing ways in Elijah life, you look for him to meet you in the everyday and the ordinary in Esther life. Could God give us lenses to see him all the time that he's at work? Because that's what we're going to see in the text. You're going to go like, why is Mordecai right here when he hears this thing about the king? He could have been anywhere else, but he's here. Is it just coincidence? You just go, why is this coincidence after coincidence after coincidence? No, it's God. God's putting you in this seat with this person in this conversation right now. Can we pay attention to those things and not just go, well, I'll obey you when you write it in the sky, God. Because that's kind of what I want. That's, that's what we want, these big kind of, you know, like it's definitely clear. But if we pay attention enough to go, God, where are you moving in the ordinary? Right? This conversation with a coworker. Like there's something in that. You're at that exact place when that person is at that exact place? That's not coincidence. We believe that's God's providence. How do we see it in the conversation with a coworker? How do you recognize this by going outside and listening to the birds? Jesus says to watch the birds. It's actually a command. Can we pay attention to those things that are in our everyday, ordinary life to taste a good meal and just appreciate God at work? It's in the tears of a friend as you sit with them and go, I, I don't know. I don't know. Can you see God? It's in the taste of a piece of bread dipped in some juice that followers of Christ, we get to take every single week. Can we recognize that God is who he is? His promises will prevail. Even in the book of Esther, it looks like it's going down. Like all his people are going to die. This is not good. This is not good. It's not good. God, where are you? And then these little conversations change everything. And then we step back and we go, oh my goodness, God, you're in all the little parts of my life, even the ones I don't recognize, and I want to trust you for those things. It's interesting that the time that the book of Esther comes out, and even this first chapter, um, most scholars think like, like this, is, this is after the Persians and King Xerxes go and they fight the Spartans, the 300, and they lose. So everybody that reads this knows the history 
and they know he's going to lose. So why does the author put all this stuff in here? Why does the author give this whole, like, look at Xerxes, how amazing he is, couches of gold, goblets of, you know, they're, they're, they're made with gold. Like, why does the author just say, this is King Xerxes who lost to the Spartans, and he replaces his wife with a new king? Why? Why? I think what the author is doing is intentional here, to say all this stuff that looks powerful on the outside, it's really empty. It doesn't, it doesn't guarantee victory. We think it does in the world's eyes, in the world's economy, it does, but it's like biting into cotton candy. It's this big, colorful thing, and you take a bite, and you go, Where did the, where's the food? Like I, you bite into it, it just kind of dissolves. And this is, if you bank your life on appearances, on control, on power, this is what's going to happen to you. It will dissolve. It might look good on the outside for a little bit. But in the end, it's, it's, there's no substance there. This is, I think, what the author is trying to do. To say that, again, all this stuff on the outside, it doesn't guarantee you victory, which is the story of the kingdom and the story of Jesus. If you look at the life of Jesus he constantly resists the earthly glory and the obsession of appearances by others. Even in Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah. There's not going to be anything on the outside that's going to be attractive about this person. And he continues like we saw a couple of weeks ago as the enemy says, hey, you can have all this glory. Jesus says, nope, not playing by those rules. Jesus Resist the earthly glory and the obsession of appearance. Jesus continues moment by moment to release control to his father. He says, I'm going to keep giving control to my father. I'm on my father's timetable. I'm trusting my father. Even as he goes to the cross, I know it's going to be painful, God, if there's any way you can do anything else, but, but, but I trust you, not my will, but your will be done. He continues to release control to his father. And Jesus, he serves the people he doesn't lord over them, right? Some of you guys know the story. Like, he, he bends down and he serves and he washes the disciples' feet, the one that's going to betray him, not just his friends, but his enemies. He serves them. He loves them. It's the direct opposite of what we see in Xerxes in the text. And we see in verse 7, chapter 1, it tells us that Xerxes drinks from a gold cup this outward appearance of, of, of fame and glory and appearance, but Jesus drinks from a different cup. He drinks the cup of the Father's wrath. Then the outside, that man, it looks like he loses. That wrath that we deserve, that I deserve because of my sin, because of my separation from a holy God, I deserve punishment. I do, I deserve punishment. But what Jesus does, and the love of the Father, he steps in with Jesus and he says, no, I'm going to take the cup that you deserve to drink and I'm gonna drink it on myself on the cross. And that's where we get freedom. That's where we get freedom from this appearances, from this power, this control, as we give our life to Christ and we exchange our life for his and he makes us new and he makes us right. They were made clean. We're gonna sing a song on the back end today about called Hallelujah for the Cross. And one of the lines is like, God, thank you that I was, I was a prisoner, but now I'm not. Now, normally we think in the context of salvation, which is very true, but do you know you're a prisoner to what other people think of you? Maybe you're a prisoner to your current circumstances. You're going, God, I don't understand this. I don't like this. Would you change this? And what the gospel does and what Jesus does and what that song does is it says you're no longer a prisoner. You have freedom if you've given your life to Christ 
because of what he has done and what he will continue to do. But we need to be reminded to see that freedom in everyday, ordinary parts of our lives. That's what we want to do this morning. That's what we want to do throughout the book of Esther, to be reminded of the sacrifice of our Savior, that we've been freed because of the cross, that he would change us from the inside out, and that we would trust him even if we don't feel like we can see him working. Let's pray and ask him to do that in us today. God, would you help us this morning see you? Some of us are crying out to you and it feels like you're silent. Help us trust and realize you're not. You're always at work. God, you're always at work. Help us see it in the normal, ordinary, everyday things and help us not chase power and control and appearance like we see in King Xerxes, but to bow our knee to you, the true king. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done to give us freedom from the things that we feel bound to because of the cross. Help it sink from our head to our heart this morning as we respond. We ask it in your name. Amen.